I would say this morning as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Now, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and um, let's get one to you. And we're going to go into Genesis, the end of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28. Actually, God willing, the entire chapter 28. And I want to start with a story that even probably Landon hasn't heard, which would be rare. It, uh, when I was a little child, um, which is hard to fathom perhaps that I was ever little, but I am, that was a time, and probably about four or five, my mother was still relatively healthy. She was decreasing quickly from the cancer that would ultimately take her life. But she was a feisty woman, a feisty, feisty woman. And she would work, and she worked cleaning houses, houses that um, had just been built. So she would clean a lot of the sawdust and all of the stuff that kind of comes with a brand new house. And, and, and occasionally, she didn't have an option. She had to take me and my twin sister with her. And, on, and I was always the one that, as a boy, that if you were a parent, you would have said something like, we should have had girls. And... I was a boy's boy. If there was a tree, I would hang from it. If there was a roof, I would jump from it, that type of thing. And so, I mean, as a four-year-old or so, a brand-new house is just a playground to, do, to go and explore while your poor mother is doing her work. And so I, I, one of those particular rooms, several rooms away from my mother at this point, and I was never one to see how far I was from her. I just kept going forward, much like my youngest does with me, that... I'd find myself in one of those places where my sister and I were, I don't know, playing some form of game, tag or hide-and-seek or whatever it was. And I went into one of the closets. And as I went into one of the closets, I closed the door so that she wouldn't find me. And I discovered something I had never knew existed before, something called a, a quick-trap crawl space. Now, what a quick-trap crawl space is, is for people who really don't want to carry their, their laundry down into the basement, They put it on the floor of their closet, and the moment they close the door, the floor just drops out. Now, if you could imagine what that would be like to be about a four-year-old child, closing the door, and then, woof, the ground just leaves you. Well, the basement wasn't fully completed. So basically, what happened is, I was small enough to fit in a chute that went down this thing, kind of like when a wipeout, and, and I landed down in the bottom, and it was pitch black. And as far as I was concerned, I landed in another universe. And here I was, it was pitch black. I had no bearings. I had been jostled around so much on the way down that I I had to sit down for a moment and just put my hands out to figure out which way was up. I had never been in the room I was in, and it was so dark I couldn't see anything. Now, obviously at about age four, it's not a time for you to try to brag about how brave you are. At a moment like that, you'll you're freaked out. That's what you are. And, and I'll make no you know, qualm about it. And so there I am. I have no idea where I am. And I'm just go, Mom! As any child might in whatever way they would. Now at that moment, all of a sudden I hear footsteps. And as I hear footsteps, a door opens. And as the door opens, there's my mother standing at the top of the, uh, of the steps. And I realize I had actually, it was resting my arm. I realized the ground was uneven. And the reason was my, my hand was on a step was actually on the steps that took me on the way up out of the basement. Now, I I didn't know that at that point because it was so dark. I was so freaked out that all I knew was I didn't know where I was and I had no idea how I was going to get out of here. But the comfort came in sort of a threefold. First First of all, there was light. And the light brought a lot of clarity to where I was. Second was there were steps. Now, those steps were profound Because those steps told me the place where my mother is and the place where I am are only that far away, and they're achievable. I can get from here to there, and the only way I can get from here to there was on these steps. And, of course, the third thing was seeing my mom, which, of course, then brought the safety of knowing, okay, I guess I didn't die at the moment. I I think I've actually made it back into reality. Now, the reason I say that is Jacob is in very much a similar situation in this chapter. If you remember in the last chapter, and actually at the beginning of chapter 27, he had sort of gone into a room, 
pretending to be his brother. He had draped himself in animal fur at the request of his mother. He had wrapped it around his neck, sort of like one of those things when you get in a car crash. And he had told his dad, he was Esau, to get a blessing that had already been promised him, by the way, by God, and had already been handed to him via the birthright by his brother Esau, who was the older of the two twins. Now, just the same, as he leaves there and his brother shows up to try to fulfill his part of the bargain, he finds out that his brother had gotten a blessing he himself wanted. And now what we read is that this brother, who, by the way, his name means Harry, because that's what he looks like. He's a hunter, so he doesn't have a problem killing anything. I mean, if Jacob were after you, as little as we know about Jacob, he'd be less of a threat than this boy would be, who we know was a hunter. He doesn't have a problem killing things. And what mom says is, your brother comforts himself with this. I mean, your dad says he's dying. No one knows, other than God, that he's going to live at least another 20 years. And, his bro- and, and your brother comforts himself with this one statement. When my dad dies, I'm going to kill my brother. Now, how would you feel if you were Jacob? I'd think, this is, there's no comfort in that statement to me. I'm the one he wants to kill. So mom, also not having all of the information, turns to the boy, Jacob, and says, okay, here's the deal. I want you to get away from here until your brother's temper subsides until he stops being so angry, until he stops wanting to kill you. And so why don't you just go and take a little trip to my family where I came from back in in Padan Haram. Now, we don't recognize it from reading that, but we're talking about something four to 500 miles away, maybe as much as 557 according to the routes that we're aware of. So imagine, I mean, we're not talking about taking a plane, We're not talking about taking a car. Nothing goes faster than 20 miles an hour. Nothing goes faster than 35 kilometers an hour here. So now think about this. Your mom might as well be telling you, I think you need to go to the moon until your brother calms down a bit. And she says, only a couple days. Don't worry, it'll only be a couple days, and here will be the clue. When your brother mellows out and he stops wanting to kill you, well, then I'll send for you. But why don't you go and get yourself a wife? Now, understand, it appears as if Jacob is at least 40 years old. And he's still living with mom and dad. And mom kind of looks and says, I think it's about time you got yourself a girl. Not only that, this is a good time because you need to get out of here before you get killed. Now, sad as it is, Jacob will never see his mother again. His mom thinks, get him there. Obviously, the trip there is going to be so much longer then the time she thinks he's going to stay there. But in the end of it all, Jacob will be there over 20 years for a bride that he desires. And when he comes back, his mom will never send for him. So think about it. How how many days do you wait at this house waiting for your mom to send for you? You know, right? Oh, not today. How about today? You know, I mean, waiting. There's no no cell phones. I mean, this is someone that's sent on a pony with with a letter. And so you think about it, he's waiting and he's waiting and he'll never see his mom again. Now, obviously, both mom and dad, neither of them have all of the information. Pick it up with me in verse 43 of chapter 27. Now, therefore, this is mom speaking to Jacob. My son, obey my voice, arise and flee to my brother Levan in Haran. And stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you've done to him. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you're aware of the fact mom was the one who came up with the idea. doesn't seem that she's part of the picture as far as the son is concerned. But then she says, Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? Rebecca said to Isaac, Now she talks to her husband. I'm weary of my life because the daughters are hit. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of hit, like those who are of the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? The wife comes to the husband and says, we need to get rid of Jacob. Now, she's not playing the game of, well, we need to get rid of him at this point because your other son, the one you favor, wants to kill him. She's just kind of looking and she's playing another angle. Now, what's clear is mom knows how to play the angles. What angle is going to work with her husband? And it works. And that is, 
I don't I, what? I don't want to marry one of the people from around here. He needs to find a good one from the family. So she wants to send him back. And the dad goes, okay, that seems to work. Let's get him there. Now, 500 miles away. So chapter 28, verse 1. Isaac called Jacob. That's his dad calling his son. And he blessed him. And he charged him. Now remember, dad had already given him a blessing. And that blessing should have come with the birthright. But this blessing seems an awful lot more like a father who seems to actually be seeking the Lord. And he said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Now, before we go any farther, please understand here, God's not a racist. God doesn't hate any race of people. God does not favor one race of people. If you think that God favors the Israelites, you need to recognize God never shines a spotlight on anyone without giving them responsibility. God's smart enough to know that if he gives you favor, it's for a purpose. If he gives you talent, it's for a purpose. Whatever wherewithal he gives you, it's for a purpose. And it's for a purpose that will bring people to the face of their God. Now, with that in mind, God is sending this man on a journey Now, just like Abraham, back in chapter 12, began his journey of discovering who God is, Jacob will now be on that journey. And might I just say, so are you. Now, maybe today, before we go any farther in this, you're already feeling like you're in the crawl space. Things are pretty dark. You're scared, but you don't want to cry out to anyone. You've tried things, and they aren't working, and you have no peace. And you can put up the mask long enough and keep the facade up, but in the end of it all, you're not believing your lies. You know better. Well, I'm here to let you know that God has you on track today to encounter Him. Not as somebody who wants to make your life more miserable, but for someone that wants to give you rest, something you may never have had to this point, who wants to remove the burdens of this world and give you His peace and be your peace. Now, Jacob doesn't know what trip he's about to take. I don't even know if he knows how far this trip is. All he knows is he needs to get away from his brother who wants to kill him. Now, have any of you in this room ever genuinely had someone who really wants to kill you? Because it is profound. And I tell you, it will change you. I, I, there's no bragging and telling you I've been one of those people. I can tell you that when someone says, let's go paintballing or playing laser tag, it's a pretty good possibility I'm not going to come with you. You go, why not? Because I've had a real gun pointed at me before, and I can tell you this, it's nothing like watching it on TV. And the moment you've had a real gun pointed at you, don't even point a fake one at me. Don't expect me to be very nice to you at that moment. Don't expect for me just to stop and try to reason with you. I will try to disarm that gun from you first. Then we'll talk while you're broken. Well, with that in mind, he's on a journey. And I want you to know that it's going to take this kind of journey to get Jacob where God wants Jacob, just like it would be for all of us. What is it going to take? It's going to take Jacob to be alone. Now, maybe there are things in your life right now that are comforts. And you find them dripping away from you, falling away from you, and you wonder, what in the world is going on? Might I just dare say that God knows how to get you alone because there's some things that God can only tell you that you would only hear when you don't have your cell phone on, when you're not sitting with your homies. Because there's just some things that can only be whispered in the ear, including, by the way, as far as I can tell, I love you. That sounds so different when I'm with my peeps than it does when I'm actually alone, when I need to hear it the most. Arise, verse 2, and go to Padamaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from the daughters of Levan, your mother's brother. So what dad says is, get yourself a cousin and marry her. And he says, may God Almighty bless you. El Shaddai, please know that for all of the names that God has given in Scripture, it appears to me 
that Isaac has finally reconciled that God really has all the power. Not Harry Potter. Not anything of its sort. Not witchcraft. Not the government. Not all the steroids in the world you can take. God is not some mighty. He's almighty. Now, how many of you, by a show of hand, are convinced that this God we speak of in the Bible is God Almighty? Let me ask. He has all the might, all the power. Here's the problem. How do we get God out of the theoretical, out of the theory, into real life? Let's be honest. We may be able to argue our doctrine, but it's a different story actually being able to testify of God's power versus being able to argue of it. Does that make sense? I think it was Corey Tenboom who said, you never know that he's all you need until he's all you have. Well, may God Almighty bless you. And listen to this blessing. May he make you fruitful and multiply you that you'll be in assemblies of people. What does that mean? May you have lots of babies. Be simple. And give you the blessing of Abraham, which I remind you is Isaac's dad, to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to dad, Abraham. So his blessing is twofold. May you be fruitful, and may you gain the land. Because after all, if you have a lot of kids, you want some land. But recognize that a blessing of a similar nature rests upon every Christian. Now, I'm not telling you I would send you to Jerusalem and start claiming land. That would be foolish. People there have guns for a reason. And there's enough crazy people there. We don't need to add any to it. But I will say this. Jesus has said, that have come that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Now, I don't want to get gross and I don't want to get explicit. But in the simplest sense, you cannot have babies without two people being involved. There must be a union. Here's the crazy part. We often think as Christians we need to bear great fruit and the, we, the way we need to do it is to go through a lot of programs, to get an awful lot of training, to work ourselves really hard, to make sure we've given ever everything to charity and so forth. And yet we can do all of that and bear no fruit because the truth be told, you can't have babies without having a partner. And God is intended in no sick way to tell us. Look it. Because the most important thing to God is not your service. is not your education. It's your intimacy. He, Jesus didn't die with you to make you a theologian. He died for you to be with you. Because he happens to be head over heels, undeniably and irreversibly in love with you. Just the way you are. Warts and all. He knows what you look like without the makeup, physically and spiritually. You know, we know what it's like to hide those things. He knows what it's like to see them. And yet in all of that, he still wants us anyways. And that to me is amazing. And yet please recognize that God intends for you to be intimate with him. Now, if the only time you're close to him is when you're sick, why would he want you well? If the only time that you're close to him and calling out to him is when you're poor, why would he want you rich? If the only time you cry out to him is in a time of great trial, why would he ever make your life easy? And if someone teaches what God really wants is for you to be healthy and wealthy, rich and easy and comfortable, and you could be all of those things without being intimate with them, they're ripping you off of the greatest wealth of all eternity, which is an intimacy with a God to whom in His presence is the fullness of joy. Please understand, God wants you. He doesn't need you, but He wants you. In this particular text, He says, may you be fruitful. And might I just say, may you be fruitful too. But this is what I've learned. If you cling to Christ, you'll find yourself being fruitful. You won't have to put on a smoke and mirror display and be all kinds of crazy. Well, so he sends him away. Verse 5, Isaac sends Jacob away and he went to Badam Aram. Now, look at one verse. <coughs> Not even a complete verse and he's traveled over 500 miles to Levan, 
which by the way, his name means whitey, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Don't miss this. Notice in verse 5 the order. God didn't say Esau and Jacob, though Esau was the older. Notice already God's made mention that Jacob gets first billing. Verse 6. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badamaram to take himself a wife from there. And that he blessed him and gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone into Badamaram. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Machalat, which, by the way, her name means sickly. There's a name for a girl. Uh, here's my daughter, sickly. Yeah, there's a catch. So the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. Interesting, Nebaioth is a term that means fruitfulness. Isn't that interesting, considering the blessing we just had? It's a bit of play. So let's bore this out for a second and see how this plays out in our own life. May I borrow Femi and Jeffrey? Come on up here for a moment, you guys. Typecasting. I picked the two guys who looked the most like me. <coughs> Tall, thin, good looking. Okay, so, and young. Now let's just say I have two sons. Let's just call Jeffrey my oldest, and let's call Femi my youngest. This is Jeffrey, everyone. This is Femi. Okay, now, in this, what we read according to Scripture, I'm not going to pick on you guys the way it is, but let's, what we read, in essence, is that the older son never really seems to have a great interest in the spiritual. The physical, on the other hand, he's very interested in. He wants the bling-bling. But he's not interested in actually anything that really involves God. And unfortunately, at the moment, that's being played by Jeffrey, which shows how good of an actor he is because he's not like that. So here's Jeffrey. Now, Jeffrey wants the blessing. So his life is involved in regards to giving me stuff. Now, that doesn't mean Jeffrey couldn't go to church. As a matter of fact, Jeffrey could find a church that's just for Esau's. You know what I'm saying? You know, the church where everything's about God wants you wealthy. Take a look at this. Look at the suit I'm wearing. Look at the, ooh, look at my car. I got four more like it thanks to your giving. Now, give him faith because I need another car because I need one for every day of the week. So, and, and Jeffrey goes, ooh, that looks good. You know, I mean, family's kind of Christian. We pray a lot around dinner and so forth. And look at my little brother. My little brother, he's, oh, that guy's like fasting. Who fasts, for goodness sake? I mean, why would you not want to eat? So, unless they're serving vegetables. So, all right, so I'm going to try to blend in as much as I can. So what Jeffrey does is Jeffrey goes to church. Now, he doesn't go to the same kind of church. Jeffrey goes to a church that feeds his flesh. A church that says... God wants you to have everything right now. Let's not think about the future. Let's not talk about eternity. Let's not concern ourselves with people going to hell. Let's instead just kind of talk about the now. And Jeffrey goes, hallelujah, I'm all about that. Now, Jeffrey learns a lot of the same language as Femi. Are you with me on this? So, Femi starts praying. Jeffrey goes, whoa, he prays. Well, then I better pray too. God, gimme, 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 gimme. Now, Scripture says... That the leech has two daughters. Give and give. Now get that. I'd like you to meet my daughters. Give and give. Now anybody that says, no, the idea is give to me. So we might say today, gimme. So any God that kind of talks to you and says, let me tell you what I have. I got gimme and I got gimme. Which one do you want? You pretty much know that guy's a leech. Ladies, you meet some guy and he calls himself a Christian. He goes to church and he says, oh, I'm all hallelujah. And then he goes, gimme, gimme. I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Leach. Get out of there before he starts sucking on you. So, (coughs) can he say that in church? Yes, he did. So, now, just the whole point of it is, is we could feed that. And the bottom line is, every one of us, before we gave our life to Christ, we were all leeches, whether we'd like to admit it or not. That's who we are. We size people up. Nice to meet you. You got a lot to offer me. Ah, it's really nice to meet you. Sort of nice to meet you because you don't have as much. Now, Get the idea on that. And so Jeffrey's praying, just like Femi is. You know, you know, Femi goes, well, he says, all right, you know, I'm going to give, man. I'm going to give. I'm going to give to poor people here and there, and I'm going to give to. And, and Jeffrey goes, now, how do I work this one? 
I know I'll give him places where whatever I give, I get more back from. That's going to look really good. And so Jeffrey goes, you know what? Ooh, that newspaper is going to come around here, that reporter. I'm going to make sure that I'm, wait a minute, as they're taking that picture of the person, I'm going to position myself right here, and I'm going to be buying a big issue just as they snap that photo, just so they, so they can, look, look, family, look, there I am in the paper. Look at that. Ooh, I'm, mm, just call me a martyr. I'm just giving up everything, right? Here's the problem with positive peer pressure. As the dad, I'm praying, and they're like, well, we need to pray. I'm like, why not? I want to give you everything. And he's like going, I want to give you everything. He's like, yes, I want to give you to get everything. Now, he added a couple words, but it means, you know, in his own mind, it means kind of the same thing. And what happens is, <coughs> excuse me, somewhere down the line, something happens. Don't worry, you won't be up here all night. So something happens where all of a sudden you see something profound happen, and there's a delight. Now, here's the problem. If Jeffrey's mindset isn't about following the Lord and he's not the center of the universe, if in Jeffrey's mind, God is like a a moon that orbits the earth, his world, so that whatever God, you know, God's sort of his master card, not his master, just to give him what he wants. He's going to try to fill in that gap and try to step up. And what he's going to do is he's going to step up with the best he could come up with, but it's still almost. And in Christianity, Almost doesn't count. Christianity is not like a hand grenade. You can't have an almost Jesus and be almost saved, and that's almost good enough. And yet, but there's no almost heaven. And so what happens in the text here, what we read is, is that this guy, Dad says, look it, don't go marrying an unbeliever. I don't want you doing that. Because if you marry an unbeliever, you've already sucked into their God system already. That's clear. So I want you to get out of here, and I'm going to send you to California. Because that's kind of far away. In a boat. So it's going to take you a long time to get there. But don't worry because your brother wants to kill you. But don't worry. I'm going to call you in a couple days. And you'll come right back. It'll be just as if nothing ever happened. Except you'll be married, right? You could come back with a woman, right? Because you know, people are talking. You're 40. So, <coughs> so I want you to go. And I've got, I got this really good church in California. And I just know there's some girls that go, Woo! And this is going to be perfect. You're going you're to marry the right girl. Now, this is not prophecy. This is, we're all role-playing here. So, and so, off we send him with the idea, look at, and the Bible makes clear, I don't I want a believer marrying an unbeliever. There's no such thing as evangelical dating in Scripture. You know? It's like, it's like e-harmony page. By the way, coincidentally, you could be whatever you want. Just like me because I'm cute. And maybe you could get saved. Well, it doesn't work that way. Because, you know, sooner or later, they're like, wait a minute, that's a bait and switch. And that doesn't work in any, any kind of context. So, off you head, and he heads off, so go ahead. Off he heads with the idea, he's all, and now, now, all of a sudden, somewhere down the line, this boy learns of it. And what he learns is, okay, let's see if I got this right. I've already married two women, and Dad doesn't like them. That was clear. One thing is, it isn't like he ever said, Dad, what do you think of this girl? Because Dad would have went, ah, no. And so, and, you know, it's sort of like, here he comes, he brings in this girl, and the girl's like, hey, how the F are you? Ah. You know, and Dad's like, I'm not really sure about this girl, Jeffrey. And she's like, what? Come on, hold on a second. And she's wiping the bottle of wine. I was smacking it down. What? Hey, nice to meet you. All right. It's kind of like communion. I've got my wine, you know. And, and then that dad kind of, there's none of that. All of a sudden, he sort of shows up with a couple girls and says, these are my wives, this one and that one. And, and all of a sudden, he looks and he sees that dad sent him up. And he goes, well, dad's not real hip on the girls that I, well, the crowd that I hang out with. So I want to kind of please dad a little bit. And so what he said is, well, he sent him over to kind of a family, a distant family member. And so he sent him to a distant family member to get him married. And so in his mind, it has nothing to do with whose God is this. All he knows is distant family member. Well, there's another distant family member. Abraham had a brother named Ishmael. I need to get myself a girl from there too. So what happens is Jeffrey winds up with wife number three. Now, wife number three is now think about it. It's Abraham's brother, <coughs> his family. But the problem is there's still no governance of God there. They aren't worshiping the Lord. But you can see him kind of going, going, what do you think of this one, Dad? And that's the almost. Go ahead and have a seat, Jeffrey. Thank you for letting me do that to you. Um, follow me on this. It becomes a clue a lot of times because there are people who really want God's stuff, but they really don't want God. And what will happen is they'll kind of play the game. And they'll be like, isn't this good enough? It's kind of almost. I mean, he says he's a Christian. You ever heard that line? 
You know, Satan says he's a Christian too if he'd go out with you. You know that, right? As a matter of fact, it tells us in Scripture that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. It's no surprise that those who serve under him parade themselves as ministers of righteousness. Not just a Christian, a minister of righteousness. So here's some guy somewhere, and he goes, well, that guy, look at that. Why would I want to be a Christian? That guy says he's a Christian. I'm like, Satan says he's a Christian too. Are you dumb enough to believe that? Well, he says he's a Christian. Yeah, that, that's good enough for me. That's not good enough for me. Is it good enough for you? And what we do is we say, but he's, you know, and what you don't want to say is, but she's cute. I mean, check it. I mean, I walk down the street. People look at him, lucky guy. And then, like, that became your priority? And she says she's a Christian. You can almost, I mean, I know there are times where people have turned around and turned to the girl and said, before you meet my parents, tell them you're a Christian. Don't worry about anything else. Then don't talk for the rest of the night. <laughs> Hide your tattoos, cover your piercings, and whatever you do, don't talk after that. And carry, oh, carry this book. Would you carry this book, this, this Bible with you? Just carry this and just hold it like this. <laughs> they don't have to see you ain't read it. Just, just you know, and just, I'm a Christian. Good job, son. You finally. And this is, and it's almost. But the problem is, it's a bit humorous here, but let's be honest. How many of you know tragic stories because of the almosts? Now, look at, for what it's worth, I have two daughters. That's pretty evident. And you have, you, you have to be here five minutes before you find that out. <coughs> Each one of those girls has a threefold stranded cord that sits in my room. Traditionally, when a girl is born to a family in the Middle East, the family members weave this cord. It's blue, it's purple, and it's gold. Or red, purples and red, and it's gold. And the idea is simple. You realize you have those girls on loan. There will be a day when those girls will carry on another name. Very likely. And so what do you do? You have a responsibility. It's a temporary responsibility as a dad, and you set the standard. Red is because it's physical. You provide for them physically. You want to make sure that they have food to eat, clothes to wear, a house over them. Blue, you want to make sure that, there is an, that there is a, there's a comfort level emotionally. So you provide for them emotionally. Now understand, the safest thing you can do emotionally is just be stable. Have you learned that? Just being consistent. When we're young, a hero is a guy who shows up for a second, does the right thing. But let's be honest, as we actually get in touch with real reality, a hero is the guy who does the same thing because you can count on him. I want to be that kind of hero, especially for my girls. I want them to know they know where their dad's going to be and what he's going to be doing. They can expect him to read the word with them at night and pray with them. Because that kind of consistency isn't going to be found by much men. You're aware of that, right? And if the dad lays it out right, the girl should be like, mm, that don't play so well with me. I've seen what a real man looks like. But then you also have the goal of that of, of faith. You raise them in the ways of heaven that they know what it really means to follow the Lord. Not just some bozo that claims it's because that's his tool to get what he wants from you. There is a day when I'm going to stand, unless if the Lord tarries, and I'm going to hand those cords to two men. I pray for them. To this day, I pray for them. But I would expect them to hold the standard in all three areas. I would expect that. It's not enough to say he's a Christian. Let me ask, is he going to lead you? Is he going to be the man who's faithful and consistent and stable? Because almost don't cut it. Neither is almost saved. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? You know that's where it starts. I'm not talking about have you gone to church. You say, well, I walked into a garage one day and I turned into a car. I walked into a McDonald's one day, I turned into a hamburger. That's nonsense. I walked into a church and I became a Christian because you walked into church. You might as well walk into a Catholic church, see if you become the Pope. Truth be told, friends, if Jesus' most important thing is to be with you, 
if that's the most important thing and he died because he'd rather die than live without you and then rose again to give you a brand new life, have you accepted that gift? If he dropped the knee with the ring in his hand, have you said yes? Because that's what he wants. Well, let's move on in our text. So here we are with our Esau and his almost. Now, back to Jacob, verse 10. Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place. Notice God didn't call it by name yet, but it was a place God knew. He had already, already ordained it. And he stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones. And as he took one of the stones, he set it, put it at his head, and he laid down at that place to sleep. Then he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up. Now the term set up is the term natsav. Could you say natsav? Come on, this is Hebrew. You can't say natsav. Natsav. Thank you. It means to be propped up or erected. Now obviously he didn't see a ladder laying down. He saw a ladder standing up. Literally, for what it's worth, the term ladder is the term staircase. It's the only time this term is used in Scripture. The idea. You ever wonder if this is where Zeppelin got that? Uh, anyway. And its top reached to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, what a ridiculously profound moment. I can't help but think about what it was like sitting in that crawl space for a moment and seeing that door open. And I realized where I really want to be is one stairway away. And I look at this and I think, hmm. Jacob looks and he sees that there's one thing that connects heaven and earth, the place he'd rather be and the place where he is. At a moment that's extremely dark in his life, he's running for his life, I remind you. In John chapter 1, there's a man named Philip, and he is excited. Jesus said, follow me, and he did. And Philip then turns and he goes and gets a friend. His friend's name is Nathaniel. By the way, if your name is Nathaniel, the name <laughs> means gift of God. So you're like, oh, I'm a gift of God. Well, you are, at least by name. So, and he says, come on, come on. We have found the one the scriptures wrote about, the Messiah. I think we found him. And of course, Nathaniel is a, not a skeptic, right? <coughs> he says, well, who is he? And he says, well, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Yeshua, the Nazareth. And he goes, Nazareth? Come on, seriously, Nazareth? That's where he's going to come from? Nazareth maybe have... The most, most people that the, the archaeologists believe there were 60 people, as many as 120 living in Nazareth. I mean, this is where the Messiah is going to come from. He's going to come from this place. It's like little snoring or something where you go, wow, does that place really exist? And you go, okay, well... And, and I love the fact, again, that Philip doesn't argue. He just says, well, come and see for yourself. So he comes and sees. Now, on his way, Jesus sees him and he says... Now, there's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And Nathaniel's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, do, you, do we know each other? Right. Who, how, how do you know me? Did Philip tell you that? And he says, look it. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And if you read that, you kind of go, well, that's a little strange, right? Because then he just falls to the ground. He goes, oh, you're the king of Israel. And he's like, whoa, okay, fig tree, that was what did it. But God knew, <coughs> God knew that that was what it took for Nathaniel to believe. He knew what it was. And if there is something, he'll, he'll, he'll hit you with it because he wants you. But then after that, the profound statement Jesus makes when he says, wow, that's what it took for you to believe, Nathaniel. Let me tell you what you will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Wait a minute. According to Jesus' own confession, this ladder, this stairway we see here, was Jesus himself. And I think, how ridiculously profound. The one thing that, is, that will get me from where I am here on earth to where I want to be there in heaven there's only one route. He didn't say he saw a bunch of ladders, but only one. And the only way was the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, as Scripture profoundly tells us. Now look at this. With that in mind, look at how this goes. He sees this place. 
and he sees these angels ascending and descending, I tend to look at it a little bit more like an escalator. You know what I mean? It's like I kind of see them just kind of riding it up and riding it down. Kind of like Angel Station, you know? You think that one's long? Check out the one to heaven. So, (coughs) it says in verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie I'm going to give to you and your descendants. And your descendants will be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread across the west and east, the north and south, and in you and in your seed, singular, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am I'm with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. Now, there's a part of you that thinks, wait a minute, but when you've finished it, you're going to leave? The whole idea of it is, look at all of this stuff you think is impossible at this moment. I will never leave you through the whole process. There will never be a moment I'm not going to be with you. Now, get the idea here. Remember, he's running from his brother. Now, which one of you thinks, probably my brother will calm down in a couple of days and I'll come home. Do you really think that's going to happen? Doesn't it seem that Jacob is operating from that thought? Like my brother wants to kill me. The farther I get away from here, the better. And all of a sudden, the Lord shows up at this dark moment while you're in that cross space. He says, hey, man, I, I, lo- I love you. I'm with you. And, and I am going to get you back there. You're not going to get you back there. Your mom's not going to get you back there. She won't even be alive when you come back, but I will bring you back here. And when I bring you back here, ultimately, this land's going to be yours, man. And I tell you what, that whole thing with your dad praying about you being fruitful... I'll make you so fruitful, you won't even believe how fruitful you're going to be. But you need to recognize one thing more than any. I'm with you. That's the key of this. You can't be fruitful without me. Jesus told me that in John 15. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Is that enough? Imagine if Jesus said, I'm with you, and here's a shotgun. You might need that. I mean, that's kind of how we might operate. That just tells me there's a little bit of Esau in me as well as Jacob, if that makes sense. You know, I'm going to be with you. And so here's 16 other people as bodyguards because you're going to be walking through the wilderness. You're going to go, you're going to want this. The Lord has this habit of getting you to a place where there's nothing left. And then he's like, look it, I really am all you need. And I'm never going to leave you. So it's going to be, I, I will be all you need. Choose me. I'll take care of this for you. Now, how would you respond if you saw that? The door opens. The stairway is there. How would you, what would you say? Verse 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord was in this place. And I didn't even know it. You ever been there? There's moments where you're going, God, where are you? Oh, my life is so horrible. And God's like sitting right next to you, you know. And he's like, really? And you're like, why? You don't care. You're so far away. And God's like, oh, tell me about it. You're like, oh, it's so miserable. And he's like, you know, if you shut up for a second, I could talk to you. And we're all crying and whining and looking all terrible. And the Lord's like, look, and I'm with you. I'm all you need. Oh, and you know what? You know what? We don't cry because we don't sense him. We cry because we don't sense his stuff. Let's be honest. Where's my car? God, was it? I just, my oyster's empty. God, oh, the bills, and oh, Lord, and what? And God's like, yeah, hey, hey, hey. Quiet for a second. Do I have to pull you away from everything and give you a rock for a pillow before you actually hear me? Wow. You know what he says? How awesome is this place? Oh, man. This place is awesome. You know why this place is awesome? Because that's a cool rock. No, of course not. Because God is there. What makes any place awesome? (coughs) God's presence. What makes any place holy, according to Scripture? Just take off your shoes to Moses, right? The place you stand is holy. Why? Because God's there. See, nothing makes anything holy without God's presence. And the only thing that makes anything holy is God's presence. I want to be holy. God says, look it, just be with me. We'll take care of that. And then as he looks, it goes, oh, this place is awesome. This is none other than the house of God. This is heaven's gate. Oh, the way to get to heaven is through this place. This is where God dwells. This is where God dwells. This, 
this place, this, this ladder. This is where God dwells. This is the gate to heaven. That sounds just like Jesus, doesn't it? This is where God dwells, says Jesus. And the Father are one. And he says, no one comes to the Father except by me. No, why would you want another way? Could you imagine? Here's, I mean, imagine if I had a son. And you were somebody that you were dying, and he was a doctor. And you were dying of AIDS, and he came up with a cure. You were totally in debt, six million pounds in debt. My son looked and he said, I don't know, man, Lorraine, she's everything. I want to pay all her debt, and I want to cure all her ails. I want to make her healthy and live life to the fullest. And I say, you know what, my, my, my son's kind of found, he's kind of digging your chili. And, and, and he wants to take care of you, and he wants to cover you, he wants to pay your debt, and he wants to, to nurture you. And imagine if Lorraine looks and she goes, got anyone else? How do you think I would, how do you think my son would respond to that? You know, and I think, what would it be like when, when the Father in heaven offers his son to die on a cross for us? to pay everything we've ever been wrong so we could be with us and to raise again. And then we look and go, got anything else? I'd like to just, I'd rather just do it myself. Six million, I could probably pay that off. I doubt it. And you're dying of AIDS. Exactly. Well, I'm just, I'm going to think hard enough and I'm not going to be sick. Good luck on that. You know, and, and sooner or later, you kind of look and go, well, but he's here, and he, and he would really like to change your life right now. Where are you at right now? Are you trying to earn what God wants to give you? So he looks and goes, how awesome is this place? Verse 18, Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took that stone that had been put under his head, and he set it up as a pillar. Now notice the word set up. Now that idea again is this thing is standing straight up. So I don't know how big his pillow was, but now that thing is standing up. Now you kind of walk by Whoa, that rock's standing up by itself. Why in the world is that rock standing up? And that's the whole point of it. So this, this particular moment here, we have a, an upright stone. And then it says, and he poured oil on the top of it. And I go, well, wait a minute. Let me see what I get out of this stone. This stone is upright. It is anointed. It was unrecognized where he was. Oh, my goodness. That points me to Jesus, too, now, doesn't it? It was the stone the builders rejected. They didn't acknowledge it. The term Christ or Messiah is the term which simply means anointed. And in John 1.11, we read that he came to that which is his own, and his own did not receive him. He himself was unrecognized. So he called the name of the place Bethel, which means God's house. The place had originally been called Luz. Now Luz, by the way, for what it's worth, means nut. More likely an almond or a nut tree. Jacob made a vow, and by the way, this is how we end it. Our last, our first vow in Scripture, by the way. I don't know if you're aware of that. Jacob made a vow, and he said, If God will be with me, and He'll keep me in this way in which I'm going, give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. And the stone in which I have set as a pillar, it will be God's house. And all that you give me, I'm going to give you a tenth. Now, before we all go, wow, that's beautiful. I'd like you to realize what Jacob just did. Jacob's trying to bargain with God, but I want to remind you what God already said. And here's the difference between God's way and our way. God's way says, look it, I love you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure that you're provided for and you're protected. That's my job. I love you. Everything, everything you need, not everything you want, but everything you need will be taken care of. Jacob goes, I'll tell you what. If you keep me from dying, if you protect me, if you make sure I got clothes, you make sure I got food, and you actually take me there and take me back, I'll let you be my God. And I'll give you a whole tenth of everything I have. Tenth. The funny thing is God says, look at, before, aren't you thankful God doesn't say that with us? But isn't that what some people could be taught if we're not careful? You know, if you go to church every Sunday, you memorize the Bible front to back, verse markings and everything. If you make sure that your life is one in intense poverty, 
If you make sure that you've always given to kind people, and if you had one coat and someone was cold, you gave it and you froze yourself, so at the end of it all, you're walking barefoot because your socks, you handed those over to the children too. You know, in the end of all, and you made sure in the end of it all, you basically just live off of what you find in a garbage can or on the street. Then maybe I'll be your God. Is that where you're at today? Because in this, what we read is, is that God, well, we read it this way. We loved him because he first loved us. See, if God waited for us to love him first, it would never have happened. Are you aware of that, right? God's like, look, if you love me, then I'll die for you. Could you imagine if that's where God was? That's where we would be. Let's be honest. (coughs) You prove your love, and then I'll respond. Now, listen, 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 as we close this up. This is what separates being a Christian from everything else. This right here. You see, no matter where we start, whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim, and I'm not going to pick on anything, I'm just going to pick on everything. And, And the idea is simple. Everything says, you initiate, you make it happen, God will judge in the end of it all, and maybe you'll pass the test. Isn't that what it says? You make it happen. You make sure you pray this, this the same prayer, you make sure you make that trip, you make sure you give things to people, you make sure you do all your mitzvot, you make sure you do whatever it is, and you keep these laws, and you make sure all this, and in the end of it all, maybe in the end of it all, God's going to kind of stand back and go, yeah, I guess so. And you get in. Get into what? I mean, it seems like you're doing all that to keep that God away. Are you aware of that? Like, he's an angry God, and he's like, I think I've done enough. I think I've done enough. And then let me tell you about Scripture. God says, I love you. You're like, but I haven't done anything. God goes, ooh, you're brighter than the average. Yeah, you're right. I love you. I want you. And come to me as weak as you are, as broken as you are, as scared as you are, as empty as you are, as full of regret as you are, as heavy laden as you are, as disgusting and disgusted as you are, come to me the way you are because that's the way I, I, I knew that when I got you. I died for you before you were ever born. I knew you would ha- we'd be at this point. Look it. Come to me that way. I love you way too much to not take you the way you are and I love you way too much to leave you that way too. You come as you are and leave change. And I'm never going to leave you. And I'm never going to forsake you. And I'm not walking away. No, I don't know about your lives. I don't know who has said they love you when they've bailed on you. I don't know who was supposed to be a member. I don't know where your dads were, whether they were guys that actually lived up to that role or not. But I'm here to let you know there is one guy that will never let you down. And that's not a church. That's not a religion or a non-denomination. It's Jesus Christ. And he'll never let you down. He died for you when you hated him. How much more will He be with you now? He's not asking you to earn anything. He's asking you to take it by faith. Now, in every other religion, you do it, God responds. In this religion, God chases after you because He loves you and He asks you to respond. He's the groom with the ring that says, will you be mine? If you, How could a loving God send someone to hell? Look it. Can you imagine if a guy dropped it and he said, will you be mine? And you're like, no, but I want to live in your house. You think, now how, how does that work? And I want, can I have your checkbook? Can I have all the benefits in the marriage but not be married to you? Why would he say yes to that? Look, at a loving God doesn't send anyone to hell. You send yourself. He died for you to be with you. He says, will you be mine? You say, no, don't blame him. He gave you the offer. The end of it all, he died to be with you. What's left? I don't worship God to keep him away. I worship God because he's near. And you know what I think? How awesome is this place that he would be here in a nursery? But we all sit together and go, okay, now what? Now we're going to pray. But let me ask you something. How's your theology? I mean, your real theology, not the stuff you argue, the stuff you live. Are you living, a, are you living with a God that you recognize? Because if you're living kind of going, where are you? But in the end of it all, he's sitting right next to you, and you're like, where are you? God, I don't know where you are. And everyone else is looking and going, where is that God of yours anyways? And there you are freaking out. <coughs> and the Lord's like, look it. <coughs> it's my job to take care of you. How am I, how am I, how am I gonna? 
Like, you'll never rest that way. You rest in me. Now you've lived an almost life. You've not. You've learned the language and stuff, but you've never really said yes to the groom. Hey, there's a lot of churches out there, and I'm not telling you we are the church. I'm telling you we're part of the church. Have you lived an almost life but never said yes to the groom? You're almost in the wedding party. You're almost the bride. And then you're not married. Today I'd like to say you could be everything. That's your choice. Will you pray with me? God, I, I, I want to start by asking your forgiveness for where we've been content enough with almost. Read a couple things, stand up, sit down, kneel, pray a couple prayers but not really say yes to the God who died to be with us, to redeem us of all of our wrong so that we could stand innocent before the Father in love who wants to adopt us as his own. And perhaps today, more than ever, the Lord has made that clear to you. Perhaps today, you recognize God's putting upon you the burden of responding. Will you say yes? Perhaps today you're in a dark place. Kind of don't know where you are in life and and you're afraid. And yet the Lord right now would want to let you know that He could He'd change everything. He's the light of the world. You'll never be in darkness when you're with Him. And I just pray right now, Father, for everyone here, that you would revolutionize our walk with you, that you'd start it the way it was intended to be started, with our, with our cornerstone, Jesus the Christ, anointed, our Messiah, our Christ, our boss, our Redeemer, our Ransom. And in that, Lord, right now, You would set free those who are in bondage to fear, to sin, to emptiness, that feel straight-jacketed by confusion, and they're so overwhelmed. And yet, God, right now, you have shown the light of your Son, and you offer us freedom. You offer us love beyond measure. You offer us life. And if right now you'd like to pray with me to accept this gift, or maybe you've said yes, but you just want to renew your vows, just pray this prayer with me right now. God, I I know that I'm not perfect. I know I've done wrong. I'm faulty. That hasn't escaped your notice. You know. And you know who I really am even more than I do. You know every weakness and still you want me. You know every failure and still you want me. You know the me without all of the makeup and facades and still you want me. You know the guilty me, the broken me, the filthy me, and you still want me. And Father, if you were really willing to send your son to die for me, when I in my heart was at enmity with you, that he could pay for all of my wrong, all of my filth, all of my failures. And 
I say yes. And if that same son, as you've made clear in Scripture, and even promised over a millennium beforehand, was raised again, that I could have the new life of a resurrection, that I could have the intimate walk with you, that I could be made that new creation and live a new life, not encumbered anymore by those bondages, then I say yes to you. And I don't want to give you a tenth. I want to give you all of my life, not just the garbage, not just the rubbish, but all of it, that you would be everything to me. And that right now you would remove the burdens in my heart and bring peace. That you would remove the exhaustion and bring rest. That you would remove all of the pain and the grief and the regrets and you'd replace them with joy. And that today I could fall in love with you like you've fallen in love with me. And that my life would be a celebration of your love. Even as you rejoice over me with singing. So here I am. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.